When was it that I first called you the Delta flight attendant? (laughs) 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 Um, Uh, I think that was probably about six months ago. Yeah. Um, Yeah. What do you think of that? I I love metaphors and comparisons. And I remember liking that a lot when I, when I, (laughs) when I said, Jasmine, you're, you're a Delta flight attendant. I I mean, to me, it's perfect. Um, And to explain that it's, it's what we call the person that I present to the world. Um, because to see me out just walking on any normal day, you think, wow, she's really compassionate. She works in, you know, animal rescue and she's, she's kind and she's smart and she's caring and she's, you know, all of these wonderful things. When on the inside, I am so far from that person that I can't even justify how those two people exist in me. Um, and so the Delta flight attendant persona, as we call it, um, that's a, that's a very accurate one. And one that, you know, you and I love to joke about because people really don't get it when they see me. Mm -hmm. I don't present myself in a way that people would realize Mm -hmm. what, what is going on inside and what I'm actually like. Yeah. And it sounds exhausting. I've brought this up before that you have mastered the flight attendant persona smiles and helpful and they're the exits. And, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I've also challenged you on that, that that's just exhausting. It is. I think to, to put on this persona for the world of what you think people need and want you to be versus the kind of churning awfulness and loathing that you often carry around inside. It is exhausting. Um, you know, and I do the same thing with my parents at home. I try my heart is not to let them see any of this because I don't want to deal with it. And so I just go home and put on a smile and ask them if they want, you know, ice in their water. And <laughs> <laughs> that's... <laughs> uh, Mom, we're going to need a credit card for that drink. <laughs> no free drinks at this house. <laughs> you know, and, and it is exhausting and it's frustrating, but nobody would want to be around me if they saw what was actually going on in my head. You know, as as I'm standing there trying to be the perfect flight attendant. Um, Inside, I'm going, I want to die. Oh my God, I can't wait until I can go cut myself again. I'm miserable. I'm angry. I'm hateful. I'm sad. It's like nobody wants to be around that person. And so I I stifle that person as much as I can and present this other happy, smiley person that everybody wants to be around. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's only when they, if I let people in and let them see what I'm really like, that usually they're shocked because... I I am pretty damn good at the flight attendant persona. Welcome to Back from the Abyss. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock. In today's episode, we are trying something very different. Jasmine and I have been seeing each other for almost three years, doing intensive psychotherapy to address her borderline personality disorder. Rather than have Jasmine simply tell her story, like in previous episodes, together she and I explore the complexities of our treatment relationship and how this has evolved over time. One of the challenging parts of my therapy with Jasmine has been around the use of the borderline personality disorder label. I strongly suspected borderline personality disorder in the first year of therapy, but Jasmine was young. I thought her symptoms could still be lingering developmental issues, and I was scared that mentioning the word borderline would hurt her or scare her off. So for two years, we explored all the various symptoms of borderline personality disorder 
and how these played out in her life and relationships, but I never mentioned a diagnosis for what ailed her. Yet, as you will hear, when I finally suggested to her that her clinical picture seemed very consistent with borderline personality disorder, this actually came as a relief to her, giving her a coherent way to understand her pain. A final note, I think it's important to mention that Jasmine asked me if she could do this episode. I didn't ask her. We explored the possible benefits and risks, and I eventually decided that doing this episode could be very therapeutic for her, plus allow her to potentially help others, which has always been a major priority in her life. Yeah, Jasmine, maybe we could start with you talking about why you decided to do this podcast, because that, that's a big gutsy step for you. Yeah, I. you originally sent me the other podcast that you had done, um, and as I was listening to them, I was deeply filled with a desire to do one myself. Um, I really enjoy talking about my struggles and my issues, but I don't really have a canvas to do that much outside of therapy. Um, and so I talked with you afterwards and said, I'd really like to do one of these myself. And you were open to doing that. And we eventually started talking about how that would come about and how we would talk about our relationship. And in doing so, I decided that it would be extremely meaningful for me. I'm hoping that not only is it meaningful for me, but it could be meaningful for other people um, to hear my story and connect with parts of it or learn things from parts of it. And so I'm really hoping that not only is it therapeutic for me to be able to talk through what I've been going through uh, for six years now, but also for other people to learn from my nightmare of a life. Mm -hmm. So about a year ago, was about roughly a year, you and I first started talking about this idea of borderline traits and borderline personality disorder. Right. Yeah, what, what are your memories of that time? Because that, in many... Uh, therapist's office, the, when the subject of borderline personality disorder comes up, there's much dread and gnashing of teeth. And it, it can be a scary thing for both therapist and client patient to begin to talk about. Yeah, I, before that, you had just kind of called it an undiagnosed mood disorder, you hadn't given a name to it. And for me, being such a detail oriented person and hiding this so much from my parents, um, the first thing that really upset me was when I realized that was going to be on the bill that I give them, that that was going to be, <laughs> <laughs> that that was going to be listed on the bill. It's like, oh man, I don't want them to know that. Um, but as I started to do research about it, it wasn't really dread for me. It was more, oh, that makes sense. Um, yeah, what parts resonate the most with you when you read about borderline personality disorder and how that manifests? Um, Mostly, it's how much I struggle with relationships. Um, in borderline personality disorder, the tendency is that you fluctuate between almost idolizing the person that you're in a relationship with to completely switching and saying they don't care about me, they never cared about me, I don't care about them. And for me, that has been hugely true. Um I've had several relationships that have ended because of my inability to kind of work with that situation and deal with that. How much of your suicidal 
thinking, wishes, intent comes from the, the pain of these relationships that you've tried to connect with people, tried to trust them, and then you fall deeply in to care and loving and friendship or whatever, and then blows up. I mean, do you have a sense of, is that a small part of your suicidal thinking? Is that the major fuel of that fire? I would say it's a significant portion, um, but a lot of my suicidality also comes from just despising myself um, and feeling like I'm not good enough, I'm never going to be good enough. Um, And so I think it's a combination of the two that play hand in hand, and often when relationships are going poorly, then I despise myself more. Um, what What do you mean good enough? When you say, you know, a big part of me wanting to die is thinking, knowing I'll never be good enough. What exactly is that for you? Being a perfectionist, I I see small mistakes. I see massive mistakes. I see everything that I do as, well, I could have done it better. I could have been better. I could have been more moral. I could have been smarter. I could have been any any adjective that you can come up with, I'm sure I could have been better at it than I am. And so for me, it comes from a place of just not being what I'd like to be, which is ultimately perfect. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like you have this desperate inner need to be at the end of the rainbow where you are the best you could possibly be. But no matter how fast you run or how hard you try to get there, you, you never get there. Right. So thus, die. Yeah. 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 And like I said, it's a combination of both. It's, you know, pain in relationships and being unable to navigate that situation of, wait, does he care about me? Is this just what my brain is telling me? You know, no, he doesn't. Or is this actually he doesn't care? Um, It's a combination of both. And it's it's a painful situation to deal with. Mm hmm. Do you remember how old you were when you first started having suicidal thoughts? Uh, I can remember the date (laughs) (laughs) that I I had that. It was October 3rd, 2013, so we're coming up on six years. Um, And it was almost like a light switch flipped. Um, I woke up that day and just started crying and was a different person that day forward. Um, you know, for a lot of people, I think it's a gradual shift over time. And for me, it was more the day before I was fine. I was neutral. I was the person that I used to be, which was smart and caring and compassionate and good. Um, and October 3rd, 2013, I just woke up a different person. I was suicidal. I was sad. I was angry. I was uncommunicative. I felt just over time, there began to be rage inside Mm -hmm. of me that has really blossomed um, in the last couple of years. It seems like rage has been a greater driver for wanting to die than sadness. Is it? Yeah, I would say so. At the beginning, I would say that's not necessarily true because I didn't have that rage. And so it was just, I'm sad. I'm not perfect. I want to die. And then over time, it's become in these moments where I really have this deep sense of rage and hatred and anger that those are the moments where I'm most, most suicidal and most uncaring about how much my suicidality would hurt other people. Mm-hmm. Would you say that most of your rage 
is turned inward against yourself because you've already said that you think in most every imaginable way you're not enough versus how much of that rage is turned outward towards other people? I think over time it's become slightly less about me and more about other people. For a long time, any sense of rage I had was always directed towards myself. It was always, you suck, you're not good enough, look at what a mess up you are. Now it's it's that too, but it also has another component of, wow, these people are screwing me over, they're stabbing me in the back, they're doing wrong to me. It's not all me. I'm not the only bad thing going on. Yeah. Could we just go back to that date? Was it October? You said October 3rd. October 3rd. <laughs> Do you have any theories, hypotheses, what happened? Because that's quite a dramatic story that at least in your memory recounting of it, prior to that time, things were pretty much okay. And afterward, terrible. Unfortunately, I really don't. Um, it's not like a massive traumatic trigger in my life occurred that sent me into this downward spiral. It was it was kind of just, like I said, a switch flipped. And I, even to this day, I don't know why. Mm-hmm. So no betrayals at school or, you know, relationship trauma? No. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was, I was 16. And so obviously that's not a particularly enjoyable time of life. But there was no, there was no trigger. And I think that's, that still strikes me. As, That's maybe even scarier. Yeah. Because I, I would imagine if, you know, someone could look back, oh, I started having these scary, terrible thoughts after a rape, or my mom left me, or a house burned down, or I had the dog bite, or whatever. At least if you can try to come up with a story. But for you, one night, age 16, you go to bed, and after that is an onslaught of hopelessness and despair. Yeah. For years on end. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I... I was always the straight-A student, the great kid, you know, just what the closest I could be to perfect at that time. Um, and after that, I mean, I'm crying at school t- lots of days during the week. And, um, you know, I'm telling people I'm suicidal and that's leading to more issues because they're going to worthless school counselors with, you know, that, hey, she's going to kill herself. And they go in, so are you? No. Okay, then I guess that's fine. Um, you know, that was about the extent of their caring and help. Um, but yeah, I mean, it just, like I said, I woke up a different person and I had no idea why. Have you had any significant breaks, respite from suicidal thinking since you were 16? There were a few months, um... I graduated high school semester early, and there were a few months after that that I didn't feel it nearly as intensely um, until about my the beginning of my second semester of college um, when things really started to deteriorate again. Um, but I would say I had a good eight months there where it was like, well, I'm still not happy with myself, but I don't necessarily want to die over it. Um, but kind of kind of like it happened the first time um January 30th of that year I just lost it and just became rageful and angry and hateful and wanted to die and was sad and it was like 
what happened, but I was fully back into it. Since then, I've had no breaks. Yeah. What have been some of your coping strategies to deal with all that rage and hopelessness and wanting to die? Primarily cutting. Um, I was very addicted to cutting for a long time. Um, In fact, (laughs) I even developed a cutting quota for myself um, that I had to cut myself 250 times a week. It was a goal, and I met it <laughs> every week. Because you're, uh, very, you're very conscientious. Yeah, and I'm very proud of that, too. <laughs> no, it is one of your great strengths. Yeah, and, you know, it was like, well, I don't have control over a lot of things in my life, but this I can control. So it's like, well, it's Tuesday evening. It's cutting time. It's time to go into the basement and cut my stomach 250 times and clean up, throw the trash away, and that's it. And, you H- how know, much- I... How much was it something you looked forward to versus it getting to the point, like for some people, oh, I need to do my push-ups or, you know, I need to go weed the garden or, you know, I need to do this chore. And I, I wonder, did, was it a little of both that it, something maybe that you planned for, looked forward to and or felt obliged to do because you had planned it needed to happen? It began to be an obligation after two or three months. Um, And I think it was about three or three and a half months that I decided I'm just going to cut when I want to. I'm kind of done with this Um, quota, at least. But for a long time, it it really felt like an accomplishment each week. I was like, okay, that's off my checklist. (laughs) I've done something this week, (laughs) whether it's, you know. Was that the main thing it did for you was give you a sense of sort of completion and success that here I have this challenging cutting quota. And if I meet it, I've achieved achieved something. Yeah, I mean, that was certainly part of it. Part of it is just that I really enjoyed cutting. And it was something that, I mean, it's certainly been my best friend for the three and a half years that I've been doing it regularly. Um, But, you know, it also felt like an accomplishment in addition just to the enjoyment or relief that I got out of it, which I've gotten less relief over time. Um, You know, just like any coping strategy, it starts off with a lot of relief and over time it loses effectiveness. So what's your relationship with cutting right now? It's more of a casual relationship. (laughs) (laughs) Not Yeah. So, it's it's something that I do when I want to do it, but I don't feel obligated to do it mm-hmm. all the time. Um, and for a while, it was just cut myself as many times as I can on my stomach. Now I've begun to cut my hips, but cut them deeper mm-hmm. um, so that I have more permanent deep scars mm-hmm. um, versus a lot of smaller scars like on my rather washboard stomach that mm-hmm. I have now from scars. Um, is there a an emotion or a mind state that now predictably pushes you towards cutting? Uh, usually rage. Mm. Usually, it at this point, it's usually external. It's usually when somebody else does something that pisses me off that I go, okay, well, I'll be back in five minutes. I'm going to the bathroom. Don't mind me as I bring my duct tape and blades in with me. Mm-hmm. Um, so ex- rage towards external relationships or factors, life stressors, you still tend to turn that rage inward and cut yourself. Yeah. yeah. I I don't tend to externalize my anger with the person that I'm angry with. I always try to internalize it when I can. Mm-hmm. 
How have you stayed alive this long? No idea. I, I mean, there have certainly been things that have helped um, or hindered, more so hindered me from killing myself. Um, for a long time, that was, I don't want to hurt my parents. I don't want to hurt the people who actually care about me. Um, within the last year, though, it's been more so, oh, I forgot. I'm watching this person's dogs in two weeks. I can't kill myself now and break that commitment to them. Mm. Um, so it's been more commitment-based of, you know, oh, I still have this I have to do. I have this. Okay, well, if I wait for those two things to happen, then I can kill myself. Yeah, <clears throat> It's almost like your superpower of conscientiousness is keeping you alive. Unfortunately, that's probably true. Mm-hmm. What brought you to see me? Do you remember those, the early decision to come see me or those early sessions? What, what were the symptoms or thoughts or problems that made you willing to come? Um, so the first time I came and saw you was over a year before I saw you regularly. Um, at that point, I was seeing a different psychologist, and he wanted to know what medications could possibly assist me. And so he referred me to you where you basically said medication isn't going to help you. Um, and after that, I hospitalized myself, um, and they required that I make an appointment with a psychiatrist. And I had actually enjoyed our session, the one session we had together um, when I was seeing that other psychologist. And so I reached mm -hmm. out to you. And Do you remember what, what I might have explained about medications probably not being helpful for you? It seemed like you felt that my issues were primarily externally triggered, that I wasn't dealing with bipolar disorder or major depression. It seemed like at that time, um, you felt more like things were triggering me and that that was something that I would work through much better in psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. yeah, if I remember right, um, back from our early couple sessions, I remember being struck by A, how incredibly distressed you were and suicidal, but also you had normal sleep. And uh, I often find that when we have great emotional uh, distress in someone who's sleeping normally, that that argues very heavily against clinical depression or bipolar. Yeah. Besides cutting, another coping strategy, at least I, I think you and I would agree is a coping strategy is uh, disordered eating. Right. Yeah. yeah. And um, I mostly restrict on eating um, because I have very little self-control. And so when I do eat, I tend to binge eat and then I feel like shit about myself. And so then I go back to restricting and then binge again. And it's just that cycle. Um, you know, I weigh myself every day and pretty much every day I'm disappointed. Um, so it's one more thing that I can tell myself, oh yeah, there's another way you're not good enough. You're not as thin as you used to be. Um, and the body image issues have been becoming, I would say, more prevalent as cutting has been less prevalent lately. Mm -hmm. Although it sounds like with cutting, you for a long time, you were at a point where you had a quota, you had a plan, like you, you could achieve some measure of, if you will, success with cutting. But as you're describing, eating disorder behaviors, again, back to the end of the rainbow thing, like you're never getting to the weight you want or the look you want or the ideal cal caloric intake. So it seems like that might not have been as powerful a coping strategy as cutting. I would say that's true. Um, 
it does certainly further my self-deprecation and just one more reason that I should kill myself. Well, I'm never going to be as thin as I want to be. And, you know, look at you, you've gained five pounds in the last month. And, you know, so it, it I would say, if anything, it pushes me further towards suicide, mm-hmm. <laughs> which, I mean, in my mind is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, whether it was a conscious decision on your part or unconscious to latch on to disordered eating, um, in some ways, you're right, it does fuel your deep sense of failure. Because inevitably, the more you fall into eating disordered behavior, the more of a failure someone's going to feel. I mean, that's just... Absolutely. That's the way it goes. Yeah. So, yeah, I wonder how conscious versus unconscious that choice was to sort of move to a coping strategy, which will inevitably make you feel like a total failure. I think it was unconscious, at least in the beginning. And now it's more of a conscious effort of trying to justify one more reason why I should die. Speaking of coping strategies, I've always been super impressed with what I would argue is maybe your healthiest coping strategy, besides doing the hard work of therapy, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, but you've been a big journaler. Yeah. Yeah, maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah. I mean, I, I've kept a Word document because I find that I can't write fast enough to keep up with all the thoughts in my head. And so I type it out. And I mean, I have 3,000 plus single spaced pages of, you know ranting basically you know some of it is oh here's what i did today and some of it's this is why i should die and this is why i should die and this is why i should die and um i find that it really helps me i mean i do it every single evening and i find that it really helps me just to release all of the thoughts that are in my head and put them down you know i can go back to them later if i want to i never have to yeah do you ever go back and just see how was i feeling at this point or are things the same as they were two years ago I do. Yeah, I do. Um, I don't read the whole thing. That would take forever. But um, I definitely do go back, especially to some of the key points or key highlights or low points in my life and go, wow, yeah, okay, that's, that's how I was feeling at that point. And being able to reflect on that and revisit that has been helpful for me. Mm-hmm. Looking back at your journals, do you have a sense of what ways you might have improved? Over the last, we've been seeing each other how long? Three years. Three years, yeah. Over the last three years, are there any concrete things maybe that you've seen in your journals that suggest that actually you are moving forward? I think one main thing would be catastrophizing. Um, When I I first started seeing you, you were automatically saying you're catastrophizing. Um, I remember you coming up with some very extreme examples of what I was doing. <laughs> Me? Extreme examples? No. Wow. Shocking. Yeah, okay, um, okay. Yeah, I do that. Yeah. And, <laughs> and just being able to have the insight of, okay, take a step back. Am I, is this really going to happen or is this what I'm catastrophizing will happen? You know, that kind of black, white, just automatic extremes. Um, being able to think through that and be able to kind of step outside myself enough to notice that I'm doing that has been, I think, one thing that I've maybe actually improved on. Mm -hmm. 
when uh, when you talk about relationships being painful, but but it's sometimes very supportive, but also incredibly painful and often ending in a awful way. I wonder if you might start to talk a little bit about our treatment relationship, because um, my sense is over the last three years, our relationship has been both healing and it's been incredibly painful at other times. And there were times I thought that you would not come back because of things I did or said or things I didn't do or didn't say. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah, I mean, certainly one time that was very painful, um, I had reached out to you through text and said, very, very intense suicidality today. And you wrote back with a joke that you and I shared a lot because there's a lot of humor in our relationship. Um, And I had been planning on killing myself within the next couple of days. And so with you writing that and joking with me, it was like, well, he doesn't care. I can go do anything to myself right now and he's not going to care. He'll just see my name in the paper a couple days later and he'll think, oh, oh, well. Mm -hmm. Do you remember if that was more, again, anger or rage towards me or deep sadness or despair that I blew that so terribly? It seemed more like disappointment. Just, oh, well, I really thought that he was there for me. I thought he cared about me. I thought we were in this together and I guess not. You know, I guess this is just me trying to believe that somebody cares about me again. Yeah. Do you remember how we healed from that? Um, I brought it up to you and I said that was incredibly hurtful and I was planning on killing myself and you making a joke was really inappropriate at that point. Um, and over the next few sessions, we started to, I, I would say I started getting back on track with being able to trust you again because I certainly was at the point where I felt mistrustful of you um, because of that. But over time, I think just being able to recognize, okay, this is what I do. I tend to, somebody says something hurtful, I'm automatically going to say they'd never cared about me, they don't care about me, and leave the relationship. And with you, I had developed such a strong trust in you that I said, I'm not willing to give this up, let's try to work on it. Mm -hmm. It seems like it's also a good learning point or was a good learning point for me and for us that texting is risky. You know, now uh, if you were to send me any kind of messages that suggested you were in a terrible way, I would call you instantly. But when this happened, you're right. I can remember you wanting to use humor because that's easier and quicker. And you and I share so much humor. And in fact, some of our most painful sessions, we laugh a lot because I think we have a very similar sense of humor, but I dropped the ball horribly there. And uh, yeah, I've apologized. I want to apologize again. And I'm, I'm glad you stuck in there because, you know, there were other times I think where over the last two or three years where I did or said things or didn't say or didn't do things that were super hurtful. Um, and, and part of that I think is due to you, you are um, more likely to be hurt in relationships because of the borderline stuff. And also because I'm human and I'm fallible and um, I can do bonehead things. Yeah. um, I mean, I had been planning to kill myself in May. Um, I had been planning it for four months and I was very set on a particular date. Um, And you ended up calling my parents and they came and got me from where I was. And I mean, that 
I was very uncertain if I would be able to trust you again after that. It was such a breach of trust, even though I recognized that you were doing what you felt was right and what you had to do. Um, but it was obviously extremely painful and hurtful and um, certainly one of the worst moments of my life to see my mother walking towards me. And, and, knowing, and knowing that I called her. Yeah. Yeah. Instantly, I yeah. I thought, oh, he called. Yeah. I wonder if this whole incident, we might look at it as such a powerful example of a few things, but one is a, a, is of ambivalence. You know, so I think it was a week or two before your planned, very serious planned attempt, you brought the suicide letter to me and you let me read your goodbye letter, mm-hmm. which was incredibly powerful, sad, heart wrecking experience. But it was also hopeful to me. I remember thinking, okay, Jasmine brought me this letter. Um, and I wonder, there's a p- little part of her that wants to live. There's a big part of her wants to die, but a little part of her wants to live. Because if she hadn't, if it were 100% wanting to die, she would have never brought me this letter. She wouldn't have told me what her plans were, what night, how she was going to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think there will always be a part of me that isn't sure. Um, and I think that's possibly just innate instinct of I should live. I'm a human. I should live, even though I don't see a reason for it. Mm-hmm. How did you find a way to forgive me and move forward and, again, be able to trust me? Because therapy is not going to work without trust. And here I was, you know, calling your parents, telling them they needed to quick go get you to save your life. Um, and I knew when I made that call that that call might have ended our treatment relationship forever. But I, I felt like I had no choice. But I also would have understood if you had never come back. Yeah. I, I think eventually I got to the point where I recognized he had to do it. I mean, I gave him the time, the place, the method, everything. He didn't have a choice. And and at that time, I think I was so deluded into, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it, that I didn't stop to think about, uh, not if he has anything to say about it. Um, you know, and you and I had talked on the phone multiple times that day, and I was a wreck. And you called me, and I missed your call because I was off doing something. And 20 minutes later, my parents show up. And it, and I kept thinking, why didn't he call me again? Why didn't he just try one more time to get in touch with me? Why did he automatically go to my parents? And eventually I went, because you told him you were going to kill yourself, and you told him where, and you told him when, and you told him how, he couldn't have done anything different than he did. And so eventually it got to a point of, I just resigned myself to say, He did exactly what he needed to do, given the situation, whether or not that is what I wish had happened. Mm -hmm. Is there a part of you that's still upset with me? There's certainly a part of me that wishes I had killed myself that night. I mean, most of me wishes I had killed myself that night because everything, I hate to say it this way, the stars aligned for that (laughs) to be the perfect (laughs) night for my suicide. That's one story you could tell yourself. (laughs) Stars. Yeah. And, you know, so everything was perfect. I mean, I planned this for four months. It was going to work. It was a for sure thing. I mean, I was going to walk in front of a train. There's no coming back from that. There is no, oh, what if I wake up in a hospital, you know, two days later? 
I'm not waking up. And everything that night would have been perfect. Um, and so there's there's definitely still part of me that is angry that it didn't happen. But I would say I'm no longer angry with you. Mm-hmm. What parts of our treatment relationship have been most helpful for you in dealing with catastrophizing and black-white thinking and trust and in a sense that you're not lovable or nobody could truly care about you or want the best for you? I mean, one of the best things has been the humor in our relationship. Um, We laugh a ridiculous amount given the intensity of my suicidality and the intensity of my despair. Um, You know, I, I still remember a day probably only a couple months into our relationship where you walked in and you said, you know, zero to 10, where are you? And I said, I've been a solid zero all week. And just with this genuine smile on my face, just, I mean, I I can't really justify or explain the two, but I just really enjoy how much we laugh. And it, it makes it, it makes therapy enjoyable so that I want to come back. Um, but it also is a good way for me to work through how hard things are, too, mm-hmm. to be able to laugh at how absurd it is of, you know, yeah, I nearly killed myself last week. Not sure why, but I did. Mm-hmm. Um, but at times, it's interesting, you know, our we- strengths are our weaknesses, you know, our superpowers are our kryptonite. I-, I agree with you. I think maybe the superpower of our treatment relationship is our shared sense of humor and stories we share. And yet at times, my inappropriate use of humor or trying to go to that modality pushed you away in, in horribly powerful ways. Yeah. I mean, it's been both. I would say the vast majority of the time it's been extremely helpful. Um, you know, there have certainly been times where I've come in and you've tried to use humor and I've just not been able to get there with you. You mm-hmm. know, it's been too intense, too severe that I, I couldn't joke about it. And mm-hmm. That's certainly been a tricky situation to navigate to mm-hmm. in that. But my memory is that in the er, with some of the early empathic failures where I thought you were wanting to go towards humor and you didn't, I only found out later, like weeks or days later. <laughs> but it seemed, if yeah. it, my memory is in more recent months that you're much more able to tell me quickly. Like, yeah. no, we need to be more serious about this. We need to approach this with, from a different kind of emotional valence than we often do. Yeah. And I mean, I've gotten to the point more and more that I can, that I'm willing to tell you this isn't the time for it. And, you know, certainly in the beginning, I I don't like upsetting people. So it's like, well, I don't want to tell him that he screwed up. I, You know, I don't want to tell him that it really hurt me when he said this or joked about this. But more and more I've been realizing, no, this this relationship is all about helping me get healthier. And so if I'm sitting here thinking, gosh, he's hurting me horribly and not saying anything about it, that's not doing anybody any good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sure I'd be interesting to know how many times I've said this, but my memory is I've said this a lot. It's something to the tune of, you know, Jasmine, I am going to do or say things that are very hurtful to you, or I'm, I definitely am going to not do things that I should have done or said, and that please, please, let's talk about it. 
And again, my memory is that our early months, you wouldn't bring it up. You would be rageful or pulling away. But in more recent months, you bring it up right away when you feel like I have not been there for you in the way that you need. Yeah, I would say that's definitely true. Where are you today, you know, one in the treatment relationship and also with suicidality and self-harm? And I mean, I would say that parts of me are healthier, but the desire to die is still as intense as it was six years ago. Um, you know, I, I asked you to move up the date for this podcast so that I could kill myself sooner. <laughs> i should have put it in what 2025 (laughs) although this is episode 500 with jasmine so mean (laughs) yeah i mean i i still very deeply want to die and i don't know if i'm gonna end up dying by suicide or not i mean six years down the line and i still haven't attempted suicide i've been very close to attempting suicide multiple times um although of course what about today? Sorry to interrupt you. I complete this this phrase. I so want to die even six years later because... I think that's a complicated answer. And mm. I don't think it's really a fill-in-the-blank answer because mm. it's hatred towards myself, anger at other people, anger at the unfair things in this world. There, There's so many facets to my suicidality. It's not pinpointed in one in one thing that I could really explain mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. um and what about over the you know 2 3 years we've been seeing each other how much have you struggled with coming into my office you know in flight attendant mode versus be being genuine and um transparent and just being as you really are I would say with you, it's not that hard because, again, I'm I'm at the point where I recognize this is for me. I'm here for me. And, you know, so usually it's a combination of the two where I come in smiling and happy talking about suicidality and talking about, yeah, I cut myself, you know, 1,200 times in the last two weeks. And, you know, and so it's it's an interesting combination of the two, I would say, because there is certainly an aspect of the flight attendant that comes in through the smiling, humorous interactions that we have, but it is also incredibly genuine what we're talking about. And the humor feels genuine. Mm -hmm. Jasmine, as we look back on our treatment relationship and what's worked, I think you've outlined some of those things. There are some things that clearly (laughs) have not helped. Medications, not helped. Mm -hmm. Um, Ketamine, not, (laughs) not, (laughs) not helpful. No, no. No, it, you know, I think it's interesting because listening to all the other podcasts that you've done, it's been, oh my gosh, ketamine is such a lifesaver. It helped me. It helped me. It helped me. Um, That was not the case for me. (laughs) Um, It just, it didn't have that control alt delete effect on me that it does on so many people. And, you know, as, as you've talked with me about, it's not it's most likely because I don't have a primary mood disorder. I'm not dealing with major depression or bipolar or PTSD. I'm dealing with something very different with 
with arguably very similar symptoms. Um, and so it and just... That, that seems, if I might stop you there, that seems a really good learning point for all sorts of people listening is that you have been very depressed, yes, and very suicidal, but you don't have a mood disorder. Right. That, that your suicidality and depression, if you will, has come out of the borderline personality stuff. And I think it, it took me as your physician and therapist, took me a while to fully realize that. About two years, it, yeah. yeah. About two years. <laughs> Sorry. I was slow, <laughs> slow on the uptake. <laughs> And yeah, and it took, I think, did we do three ketamine sessions? <laughs> we <Yeah>. did. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, the first one was actually, it was kind of that weird experience that everybody describes. And actually afterwards um, was one of my favorite memories from our sessions together. We actually watched a comedy video on suicide. Um, and it was just fantastic i, I mean it was I, very funny that, it that was, was louis ck talking yeah. about suicide yeah yeah that well, was actually fantastic mm-hmm. it was a major bonding point in our relationship and we should, should have stopped right there yeah <laughs> sorry <laughs> sorry <laughs> yeah well i appreciate that you there was another you know i was recommending oh, let's try this treatment that's helped a lot of people and Again, my memory is first two treatments were neutral, didn't right. necessarily help or hurt. The third treatment was very scary and discombobulating and, if anything, made you feel worse. Yeah, yeah. I would say that's accurate. Mm-hmm. It was definitely a scary experience. The first two, like I said, were not scary. They were perhaps slightly unpleasant. Um, but then again, I've I've never even had a drink of alcohol. So somebody who has whose body is more used to any kind of hallucinogenic or just taking away that edge, um, perhaps it's easier on them. I would be extremely nauseous afterwards, um, which is, I'm a real baby about that. So, Oh, nausea is the worst. It is. Yeah. But I, again, my memory of the third treatment is it may have made you more suicidal. It did. Yeah. yeah. I, I came in that day suicidal and I left saying, I think I'm going to kill myself today. And probably if I had... If my body could have worked enough after the treatment, because I had a real hard time walking and thinking and doing just about anything afterwards, um, there's a chance I would have killed myself after that. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you were disillusioned or upset with me for recommending those treatments afterwards, or or alternatively, knowing you pretty well, if you turned it inward and thinking, oh, this is a treatment that helps a lot of people, hasn't helped me, thus maybe it's, you know, quote unquote, my fault, or I... I wasn't even really upset about how ineffective the treatments were. Um, At that point, I was, I mean, was and still am extremely suicidal. And at that point, I was willing to give it a shot. I mean, it's like I I knew that it doesn't help every single person who walks in. Um, I knew that going into it, but I thought, you know, I'm extremely suicidal. That's the main thing that it helps with. So hopefully it'll help me. And, you know, the first two times I left saying, do I feel a little bit better? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe that was just because of the Louis C.K. video. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But you It was know. a big learning point for me because ketamine is often so helpful for suicidality. And you were terribly suicidal and it did not work at all. And I think it was only in, in the months afterwards that I was able to put it together that, oh, the, the, su- the font of the suicidality really matters. It, yeah. And that the, your suicidality was not coming out of a mood disorder or PTSD, thus ketamine is not going to help. Right. 
And that was still a year before we kind of landed on borderline personality disorder. So, um, you know, at that point, it was still classified as an undiagnosed mood disorder. And so we didn't know if it would help or not. But like I said, I was willing to give it a try. And I didn't feel angry that it didn't work. I just kind of said, okay, well, there's one more thing that doesn't work. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And really, the only thing that does work is talk therapy. Mm -hmm. What do you think a healthier relationship for you might look like? Because you've had some close relationships with folks that mostly are all ended in great pain. Yeah. Yeah. But as you, as the healthier parts of you can imagine what a healthier relationship might look like in the coming months and years, do you have any thoughts on that? I think it would be less extreme um, because I tend to trust very quickly, which I think is kind of surprising given how mistrustful I am of people. Um, But, you know, it's like I make a connection with somebody and I say, wow, okay, this is great. I'm going to say everything. I'm going to tell them how suicidal I am and everything. And, you know, once they kind of back away or do something that's hurtful, I'm like, well, forget that. I'm done. And I think just learning more to find a balance between trust and mistrust and saying, okay, I shouldn't say everything immediately. Um, You know, I should build up a bond over time and then share small amounts of things rather than, hey, so I'm suicidal. I cut myself. I binge eat. I restrict. I'm a complete mess. Rather than doing that, just being able to navigate that more slowly and build up trust over time and then not let every small mistake or insensitive comment from that other person ruin the relationship. One of the primary mantras of psychotherapy is the relationship heals. I think Jasmine's treatment course brings this truth into sharper focus. While the warmth, compassion, and acceptance in the therapy relationship is critically important, It's the working towards healing the inevitable empathic failures that can bring about the most profound psychological changes in patients with trust and attachment issues. For most people who come to therapy have been deeply hurt by others, and therapy is a chance to work through perceived rejections, criticisms, and abandonments in real time with a healing professional who can model a different, healthier, and more connecting way of handling the inevitable pain in human relationships. If you like this episode, please share it with anyone else who might find hope or meaning in this story. Check out our website, bftapodcast.com, where you can learn more about us and this project, get more information on the treatments mentioned in the stories, as well as additional resources and music credits. You can also email us with comments or story requests. If you have time, please rate us on iTunes as this helps us spread these stories far and wide. Much gratitude to my good friend Chris Johnson who does our sound. And thank you for listening to Back from the Abyss. May each of you find the strength and support to find your way through the darkness.